All right, good morning, everybody. I have the pleasure of reading our passage this morning uh, that Jason will be preaching from. Uh, it will be Acts 4.32 through 5.16. You can find it on page 9.12 of the Bible in front of you. Um, I'm Mike Holmes, my wife and I, Colleen, which will be 27 years married this year, next month. Um, we've been coming since summer of 2018, and we've been members since January of 2019. So, Okay, Acts 4.32 through 5.16. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of the lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means the son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in and they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Please bow your heads and pray. 
Heavenly Father, uh, we ask that you quiet our hearts and remove the distractions of this world as we continue in worship through the preaching of your word. If we are honest, there are times we have been hypocritical and we have not always been honest with ourselves, each other, and most grievously you, Lord. We confess that publicly today. Lord, we ask that every encounter with your word might not just be a mental exercise, but that it might be life-changing, transformational. Help us not to just be only hearers of your word, but doers as well. May we leave here changed and more conformed into the image of your son. May we pray like David in Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. May you purify us as a church and as individual sons and daughters of you. There's much being talked about revival in the news and only you know the veracity, but we ask today that you may revive us in this place. We ask that you cause us all to turn towards you, whether we've strayed slightly or whether we're in a season of rebelliousness or spiritual coldness and apathy. And if there are any here today that do not yet know you, Lord, we pray that today may be the day of salvation for them. We ask that you empower through your spirit Jason today as he brings the message to us. May he speak the truth in love and may he speak it with clarity and boldness on the authority of your word. We pray this all in your son's precious name, our savior, redeemer, and friend, Jesus Christ. Amen. Hey, Craig. All right, I'll get myself in a position to see. Okay, I think I can mostly see all of you. Why does the church exist? Why does the church exist? Not just this church, but the, the big C church, the, the universal, universal church of, of God. Uh, why does the church exist? What do you think, kid in the front row? <laughs> so to learn about God, learn about Jesus, obey and worship them, that's, that's good. I would say to uh, comfort each other, to keep, uh, keep us focused, um, to worship certainly, mm-hmm. um, but I think for the camaraderie, comfort. Um, good. Camaraderie, comfort, worship, bring glory to God. Okay, good, good. He wanted a people for himself. Yes, good. I'm sure we could keep going. I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop us because I had an ambitious uh, <laughs> plan for this service, and I'm uh, like, all right. Uh. The church exists for the display of the glory of God. The church exists to display the mighty power and the extravagant grace of God as they are joined together through the saving work of our Lord Jesus Christ. The church is the bride of Christ, bought with His blood, redeemed by His grace, transformed by the mighty power of the Holy Spirit, awaiting 
a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. While the church waits for her full redemption, she exists in this world to magnify the beauty, power, goodness, and kindness of God. She exists as a light in the darkness, a city on a hill, a constant reminder to the world around her of the holiness and the mercy of God. The church exists to magnify the worth of the one who is worthy of all praise and all honor and all glory. The church exists to show the world what living under the rule of a good king is like. Today's passage contains the first mention of the word church in the book of Acts. And I want us to think about this passage against the backdrop of the value and purpose of the church. Okay? I know. I know. You're reading this passage. Maybe you're reading it throughout the week. Maybe you're like, I couldn't wait till we got to this passage in the Scripture because I, I want to ask some questions. I want some questions answered here. Questions like, uh, were Ananias and Sapphira true believers who were prevented from ultimately walking away from the Lord? Were, how did Peter know that they were going to drop dead when he talked to them? Uh, things like that. Well, I'm sorry. Uh, and feel free to ask me some of those questions later. Uh, or ask somebody else. Uh, <laughs> but I want us to consider this morning the overarching theme of this passage. And it's this, that the church is the people of God who exist for the glory of God. The Lord tolerates no contenders for His throne, because none is worthy of such praise and honor. When we understand that, multiple items from today's passage make a little more sense. And so I'm going to frame our time together in the Word uh, under three headings because the Word, did you, I don't know if you noticed this, but the Word great is used three times in the passage that Mike read for us. Do you know what three things are described as great? Great power, great fear, and great grace. You got them. So we're going to do it in this order. We're going to do great grace, great power, great fear. That'll shape our time uh, this morning. And, and my prayer is that the Lord would work in us today in such a way that we are stirred to greater love for what He loves and greater desire to magnify His glory as a church and as individuals. Repentance from all of our self-seeking, all of our glory-seeking for ourselves, that He would work that in us. Our passage begins with the verse that you saw printed on the front of your bulletins today. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. In the fall, Larry preached a six-week mini-series on Acts 2.42 to 47, a series within this series about life in the early church, so I'm not going to spend a ton of time on that. Uh, those messages are definitely worth listening to if you'd like a deeper dive into various aspects of the early church's focus. Uh, the early church was of one heart and soul. The good of one was the good of all to the glory of God. 
Today, we consider the shared possessions of the church. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. As needs arose, needs were met. So I'm going to get this one out of the way. Here's here's the question I know that uh, many of you might have. Was the church, was the early church a socialist political group? The answer is no. And we get many clues in this passage that that's not the case. First of all, these people are selling their houses, they're selling their properties as needs arise. They're saying their heart was they considered nothing to be their own. Lord, you can have whatever you want. Whatever is needed for the good of the body and the glory of God, it's at your disposal. Secondly, and we see, by the way, that these people are giving willingly, right? This isn't like they're getting their arms twisted. They're getting, you know, under compulsion. We talk about that at offering time. In the story of Ananias and Sapphira, listen to Peter's line of questioning to Ananias and Sapphira. He says, while it remained unsold, what? Didn't it remain your own? And after you sold it, what? Wasn't it at your disposal? Clearly, the accusation against Ananias and Sapphira is not that they kept back some of the prophets just in and of itself. And all of the people's possessions, they considered them, they were their own, but they were handed over. They, were, they said, Lord, do with them as you please. That's the heart posture of the church. The church was willingly sharing. Why? Because everybody had experienced the great grace of God. Take note of what Luke says in verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. What was transforming these people by God's mighty power, which we're going to get to in a minute, was the proclamation of the gospel, the reminder of the gospel among one another and in the world. Understanding the grace of God that is ours through faith in Christ Jesus transforms us. The Apostle Paul says to Titus in Titus 2, 11 to 14, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's what grace does in a life. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, he says to the church as he's exhorting them to give, to meet the needs of the Jerusalem church, he says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. The grace of God that is ours through Jesus Christ transforms us. Knowing that through faith in Christ, we possess what we do not deserve. Do you agree with that? 
Through faith in Christ, I have what I don't deserve, what I did not earn. What good works can I point to to say, I merited the favor of God? How good were we when he found us? How worthy were we when he saved us? And yet he did. Knowing the grace of God toward us, forgiveness, salvation, eternal hope, provision, And knowing that if the Lord so graciously provided for our deepest needs, He will not fail to provide for our daily needs. That's a theme that seems to keep coming up. I I think the mighty power of God and our struggles with anxiety are really tied together. Because if we really believe that God was mighty and in control and that we could look back you know, I got a track record. I'm uh, going to be 45 years old, 45 times 365. I've been alive for that's the big number. I don't know what that number is, but I've been alive for a lot of days. And has there been one yet where the Lord has failed to provide what I needed? Not one. Even when I was rebellious. Even when I hated him. So knowing that, I mean, think about how that transforms life in the church, right? To say, this stuff isn't mine. And I know that if I give this stuff to meet the needs of another, is God going to say, oh, sorry, you're not going to be provided for now. You gave that away. That was Knowing he's, he's going to, he's been so gracious. He gave us his son. That's the Romans 8, right? He didn't spare his son. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things, right? That's Matthew 6. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Why do you worry about this stuff? You worry about whether, what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear. The Lord provided for your eternal soul's salvation. Is he going to forget that? No way. And so that's the hard attitude. That's the grace understanding that the early church has. It says, this stuff isn't mine, and the Lord's going to provide for whatever I need. And he uses the church to do it. Sometimes that's just pride in us, right? We don't like to talk about what we need or what we lack. But the church is one of God's great instruments for the provision for one another. Resources. Spiritual gifts, time and talents. He uses one another to strengthen where others lack. Right? That's the work of the church. That's what he's doing in the church. And that puts on display his amazing grace. That these are a people who are brought together. This group would not be together apart from the grace of God. He brings them together. He unites their hearts and spirits. All who have faith in Christ in the local church are united in heart and spirit to magnify the glory of his grace. And one of the ways we do it is that there's not a single needy person in our midst. That's that's what he calls us to. That's what the early church modeled. That if there was a need, the church rallied to meet it. I have no idea where I am. I've been, I haven't looked down for a while. 
Yeah, that's right. So I ask, right? I mean, we see this phrase a few times in this passage. They laid it at the apostles' feet, right? This is supposed to be a a symbol of humility, that they're saying, take and use this for, for the Lord's glory, for the good of the body. Is this your mindset? Lord, everything I have is yours. Do with it what you want. So if the question is, should I tithe? We can talk about tithe. But what if I told you that the Lord wants 100%? That you would be willing. If he said, give it all. Okay. As an example of this, Luke mentions Barnabas. Well, Joseph called Barnabas the son of encouragement. We're going to see more of Barnabas later in the book of Acts. But he set forth as this example of the great grace that was upon the church. He was a Levite from Cyprus. Why is that mentioned? Well, he was of Jewish descent, right? He had, he had Jewish heritage. He was living among a Gentile people. And I think those details will be helpful later in the book of Acts that, that maybe show why Barnabas was especially uh, prepared or able to bring the gospel to Gentile people. Possibly. So Barnabas sells a field that was his, and he gave it to the apostles for their use as an example. Luke's, um, there were many. Why does he point out Barnabas? I think it's interesting. It's, it's not about the fact that it was known that he gave it, but the posture with which he gave it, right? They knew that Barnabas gave. They knew that Ananias and Sapphira gave. But clearly, there were two different heart postures, and we're going to get to Ananias and Sapphira in a minute. As it pertains to our finances and our stuff, we are called to give generously to meet our church budget, uh, which includes many provisions for the needs of others. We have a deacon's fund, which provides for those who are needy. We have a compassion ministry, which helps to provide for those who are needy. But all of it, I, I, I debated whether to even say that, because I want to be real careful. We, we don't boast in any of the stuff that happens here. Because everything we have is grace. And it's meant to be a living embodiment of the grace of God that we have received. When the needs of all in the body are met, it allows every member of the body to more fully experience the joy of their salvation in Christ. That their anxieties are lifted. Their worries about not being able to feed themselves or pay their bills, are lifted, and they can worship. It also shows the onlooking world a tangible example of the transforming power of the grace of God. How many of us have had experiences where you've been able to testify, oh, well, yeah, this is my, my church is doing this, or we, we did, we, uh, why, is, why people keep showing up at your house with, like, food, uh, you know, or, or what? We're working outside. Your, there's like 97 people are doing a work day outside your house right now. Who are those? Like, what do you hire those people? This is our church body. And we don't do it because we're something special, but because we have a great God who's been so gracious to us. 
And it would be easy to stand up here and command giving and guilt you into greater giving. But how beautiful is the grace of God that he transforms a selfish heart into a gracious heart. Hymn writer William Cooper said in his poem, Love Constraining to Obedience. Have you ever read this one? Love Constraining to Obedience? Sorry for some of the wording, but it's beautiful. He says, No strength of nature can suffice to serve the Lord aright. And what she has, she misapplies for want of clearer light. How long beneath the law I lay in bondage and distress. I toiled the precept to obey, but toiled without success. Then to abstain from outward sin was more than I could do. Now I feel its power within. I feel I hate it too. Then all my servile works were done a righteousness to raise. Now, freely chosen in the Son, I freely choose His ways. What shall I do was then the word that I may worthier grow. What shall I render to the Lord is my inquiry now. To see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear His pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. It's a beautiful poem. And that's, that's the heart that we're seeing in the early churches, overcome by the grace of God and looking to extend that grace. Not meritorious, not looking to earn something from God, but because of how he has worked in their lives. And against that backdrop, maybe we're able to better understand what happened with Ananias and Sapphira. Did you notice in 5.1, there's a, what's, what word does 5.1 start with? In your Bibles. But. So this is one of those unhelpful times where Luke is penning the book of Acts and he does not say, all right, on to Acts chapter 5. This is a continuation. It's just one. He's saying, so Joseph is given as an example. And then he says, but Ananias and Sapphira. The church is meant to be not only the place where the grace of God is seen, but also the power of God is clearly seen. It is a display of the mighty power of God when a heart is transformed from darkness into light, isn't it? That's amazing. When someone is brought from the power of Satan to the power of God through faith in Christ, that's evidence of His power. Your faith is the evidence of the mighty work of God. Throughout this passage, we see testimonies of the Lord's great power, power in the proclamation of the gospel, power in the labors of the body, power we saw in 5, 12 to 16, as signs and wonders are done by the hands of the apostles. I'm not going to spend much time there because we talked about that a few weeks ago with the healing of the lame man. Uh, over and over, an outward sign, some sort of display of the power of God led to an opportunity for the gospel to go forward. And here in today's passage is no exception. Look in 5.14. Luke records, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. People are being saved. People are being converted. It says more than ever in my version. I did a little bit of Deep dive on that. Some of your versions might say more and more. Did yours say, or, or still more? Um, it's, I don't know if it's comparing it to before or if it's more just saying like 
people kept coming. People kept coming. People are carrying their sick onto the streets, hoping that Peter's shadow just comes across them. They're, they're receiving healing. They're receiving freedom from unclean spirits. The Lord's power is mightily at work, bringing glory to his name and joy to the people. And then we have his power seen through the story of Ananias and Sapphira. So what is the issue with Ananias and Sapphira? We already established it wasn't their failure to give everything they made from the sale of their property. So what is the issue? In verse 4, we see that Peter accuses Ananias of contriving this deed in his heart. Do you see that in there? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? In verse 4, he also accuses Ananias of lying to God. In verse 9, he accuses Sapphira of testing the spirit of the Lord. So what is the issue? The fact that Peter says, you have not lied to man, but to God, tells me that the issue was lying. Ananias and Sapphira had agreed together to lie about how much they sold their property for. Such that what they gave appeared to be everything they made from the sale. Keeping back some of the proceeds was not the issue. It was that they pretended not to. The lying is a huge issue, no doubt, but beyond that, there's more. Why did they lie? Why did they lie? For profit. For, okay, maybe for profit. What else? What, else? what other reason? Why do you think they lied? To look good. Mm. To look good. Interesting. They want to look honorable. Maybe they were ashamed. They were afraid. Selfish. Good. It's interesting, you know, given the context of what's going to happen to Ananias and Sapphira, right? Like, this doesn't happen. If you're here as a visitor, (laughs) I just don't want you to think, like, uh uh-oh, I... I better get out of here before. uh, This doesn't happen every day in church. And that tells me that that there was something very, very important taking place. And and what I would say uh, is that Ananias and Sapphira had a desire for self-glory that drove their giving. They did not want to give it all, but they wanted to look like they gave it all. They wanted it to be known that they gave it all. So I want to ask you, brothers and sisters in Christ, how frequently in your Christian life are you more concerned with looking like a God-glorifier so that others will applaud rather than actually being a God-glorifier? What, what it looks like is more important to you than what actually is happening. John said of the authorities who believed in Jesus but did not confess it because they were afraid of being put out of the synagogue, they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And maybe for some in this room, that's what prevents you 
from believing in Christ at all. That you say, like, I want kingdom of self. I don't want to surrender my life to Christ because I want the glory that comes from man. I want myself to be king, queen. What will others think of me if I, if I put my faith in Christ? They're going to think I'm this weirdo and I've, I've renounced, like, I, I might suffer for this or I might, yeah, but God forbid this would be so. And if the Lord exposes this in you, now is the time to repent. Brothers and sisters in Christ, now is the time to repent. He is gracious to show us you are living for your own glory. You care more about what other people think than what I think. You care more about what other people think than what would glorify me. His glory is our aim. But Ananias and Sapphira wanted the spotlight. And for that, they were struck dead. They breathed their last, both of them, carried out of the temple. Can you imagine being there for that church service? And they were there for a long time, right? And Sapphira comes in a few hours after Ananias. Isn't this a bit harsh? Like, come on. Isn't that a bit harsh? The answer is no. By his mighty power, God was preserving the purity of his infant church. There will be no contenders for his throne in his church. His power is to be mightily seen and his grace is to be mightily proclaimed. Therefore, Anything or anyone that seeks to push in and steal the spotlight for themselves must be appropriately dealt with. Not because God is mean. Not because we are mean. The call on the church is still the same. To magnify the glory of God. And if anybody is trying to steal the spotlight from God or to live for self-glory and they're calling themselves a part of the church and they're being warned, hey, Brother, sister, you are consumed with yourself and your sin and your pursuits. Repent. And if that person says, no, I don't care. I don't care. It is the call of the church to remove that person, to say, this is not one who walks in the way that we are called to walk. God was protecting the purity of his church. Not because he's mean, but because he is glorious. Ananias and Sapphira lied, not just to Peter and the apostles, not even mainly to Peter and the apostles. They lied to God. Peter says, Satan has so filled your heart that you lied to God. You blasphemed the Holy Spirit. You pretended so that you could get a pat on the back or a round of applause. There is one God of the church. There is one focal point. His glory. By His great power, He was saving, healing, providing, and protecting the glory due His name and the health of the church. 
If the church is filled with people who are contenders for God's throne, it's an unhealthy church. All right. So we see in the end of chapter 4, and there here in the beginning of chapter 5, it's a compare and contrast. Compare and contrast Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira. Barnabas, a showcase of of what only God can do, a grace that's poured out into a heart that results in humble giving. Ananias and Sapphira, a showcase of what people do, a showcase of self-glory, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, taking God's glory from him if that were possible. Ananias and Sapphira deserved to die. So do we. Which leads us to the point that's going to bring us to the Lord's table. Kids, can I ask you a question? Thank you. (laughs) If you were at church on the day that Ananias and Sapphira died in church, what do you think your reaction would have been? Okay, yes, you would say, why is there a dead body on the ground? What, what else might you be, what else might you be thinking? Somebody else not in this front row here. In case you're a visitor, those are my children. Uh, what, what, kids, what would your reaction be? How would you feel? Yes, you would feel, I'm going to tell you how you would feel because the Bible tells you how you would feel. And even if you just think about it for a second, if I went to church and watched two people drop dead, I would be thinking, am I the next one who's going to drop dead in this service? And it says that great fear fell upon the church. Twice in this passage, verse 5 and verse 11, great fear comes upon the whole church and all who heard these things Such that in verse 13, Luke says, none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. There was like a a reverence, like, I don't want to get too close. I I don't know if I can handle this. The mighty works of God led to fear. Is that a good thing? Yes. Fear is good. Ah, yes, you read my notes. (laughs) The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Jesus told his disciples not to fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but to do what? Fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Paul says in Romans as evidence that none are good in and of themselves, as he quotes Psalm 36, there is no fear of God before their eyes. The writer of Hebrews says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Fear of God is right and appropriate for everyone, but all the more required in the church. Ananias and Sapphira so brazenly disregarded the Lord for their own glory, not recognizing that he had power to lay their plans to waste immediately. 
They had no fear of the Lord. And listen, in Christ, I want to be really clear. In Christ, our fear is an awe and reverential fear. It's not, it's not a fear. Well, I'll use a, if any OC Supertones fans out there. They say, not fear like a gun, but like the heat of the sun. You know, that, uh, that's, we, we in Christ no longer need to be afraid of God. But we ought to be in awe of God, right? We ought to reverence God. Our gatherings are worship services to Him. Our lives are acts of worship and reverence toward Him. The church is the showcase of God's glory and grace, and there should be a healthy fear in the church that we never deviate from those priorities. We are to be marked by gospel proclamation and radical generosity and care, both because we have experienced His grace and because we know of His might. Fear is reverence for His name, and our worship should be marked by that. But outside the church, the whole world should have a fear of the Lord that's marked by trembling, knowing that one day every single person will see Him face to face and give an account for the lives they have lived before Him. On that day, Ananias and Sapphira were in His presence giving an account. But that's all of us. One day we will stand before Him and give an account for the lives we have lived. Did you live for your glory or for His? Were you trusting in your means for eternal salvation or His? Is your life lived by your agenda or His? One day each of us will answer these questions as we bow before Him. All of us, believer and unbeliever, will bow before him. Ananias and Sapphira laid their offering at the apostles' feet, just like Barnabas did, but their offering led to their death because their offering represented a scheme contrived in their own hearts with no fear of God. Barnabas' offering was commended because it was a response to the grace of God, not a pointer to self. The early church was marked by reverential worship and mighty power because they knew the amazing grace of God through the risen Lord Jesus. Their offerings and their care for one another was an outworking of grace, not an effort toward glory. The Lord Jesus, as we go to the table, He had emptied Himself, taking the form of a servant, humbling Himself to the point of death on a cross, He died for glory thieves. He died for liars. He died for people like Peter, who maybe seven weeks before that day was so self-consumed that he denied even knowing Jesus. Jesus died for Peter. He died for you who believe that you might know how gracious, how mighty, and how awesome He is. 
We come to the table this morning to remember that everything we have is by His grace. And His grace alone. May the church always be a living embodiment of His power and His grace, walking in the reverent fear of our glorious God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we must confess. Your, your table reminds us of how deep our need was and is. That we could do nothing to save ourselves. That we are a people who live for our own glory apart from your grace. We seek to steal the spotlight that belongs to you alone. Often we are more consumed by the question of what will, what will it look like to other people? What do I look like to other people? More consumed by that question than the question of what will most glorify you? What will most show you off in my life and in the life of the church? Forgive us for that, Lord. Thank you for your extravagant grace, your wonderful mercy through the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we celebrate at the table today, may we know the forgiveness of Christ, even for those who have been glory thieves and liars. And may your grace transform us from one degree of glory to the next, that we might be a people who reflect your glory in this world as individuals and as a church, a city on a hill, all for the praise of your great name. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to invite those who are helping to serve the Lord's Supper to come forward. I'm just going to acknowledge